Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi friends, and welcome back to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, video maker, Oakland native, and big time magazine lover. I'm also a huge history nerd. I love untold stories, gross facts, and secrets, anything weird, dark, and funky from the past. Each day, I'm going to share some of my very favorite deep cuts with you, so let's take a look at today's stories. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so... Don't leave too soon, I'm gonna teach you stuff, no it won't be tough Gonna go a year till you've had enough, it's 365 Today in 1925, The New Yorker published its very first print issue. The magazine is now best known for the contemporary fiction, poetry, and local event coverage that it publishes, but in the beginning, it was designed to be a funny, lighthearted publication that heavily featured cartoons of 15-cent comic paper, as it was referred to at the time. Quite a departure from the highbrow political and cultural magazine we're familiar with today. These days, the magazine costs $8.99 per issue. The magazine was founded by Harold Wallace Ross a journalist born in Aspen, Colorado in 1892. The son of a miner and a school teacher, Ross was working class to his bones and dropped out of school when he was just 13 to eventually become a stringer for the Salt Lake Tribune in Utah. Despite not having much of a formal education, Ross had always had a way with words and eventually went on to work at such newspapers as the Marysville, California Appeal, the Sacramento Union, the Panama Star and Herald, the New Orleans Item, the Atlanta Journal, the Hudson Observer in Hoboken, New Jersey, the Brooklyn Eagle, and the San Francisco Call. Wherever Ross went, mischievous trouble seemed to follow, and eventually he earned the nickname Roughhouse for his tendency to pull pranks, like the time he stole a set of wicker furniture from the Danish pavilion at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco and stashed it in the city's press club for the reporters to enjoy. To be fair, I don't think that having wicker furniture in the press club would be a nice way to spend a conference. Eventually, Ross moved to New York, and his reputation for jokes and dry wit went with him. He started working as an editor at the humor magazine Judge, and was always a little bit fascinated by the idea of starting a new magazine, something he could make entirely his own. Ross wanted the new magazine to have a chatty, offhanded tone while still reflecting the cosmopolitan nature of New York City. The idea for The New Yorker had officially been born, and on February 17, 1925, the magazine's first issue, dated February 21st, was printed. During the years leading up to his move to New York, Ross had made a few important connections in the literary world and beyond. One of those connections was Raoul Fleischmann, the heir to the famous yeast company, the one you see on supermarket shelves all the time to this day. The Fleischmann family was famous for their yeast and bread, and Raoul had been baking in their kitchens all his life. By 1924, he was sick of baking, and just as he was getting ready to throw in the towel, Ross came to him with the idea to start publishing a bold new magazine. The suggestion couldn't have come at a better time. Together, the two men scoured their contacts in the literary world and eventually came up with a pretty powerful list of names to feature in the magazine that included writers like Dorothy Parker, Vladimir Nabokov, 
and J.D. Salinger, author of the timeless novel Catcher in the Rye. Of all the elements of that first issue in 1925, perhaps none was more striking than the New Yorker's first ever cover, designed by Rhea Irvin. The art featured a dandy aristocrat in a top hat examining a butterfly through the lens of his monocle. The character was later dubbed Eustace Tilly. And in the years since, he's become something of an unofficial mascot for the New Yorker. Every year, it's tradition to have Irwin's original artwork of Tilly appear on the cover for the print issue that falls nearest to the anniversary of the first ever publication date. So check your mailbox when you get a second, if you're a subscriber. Eustace Tilly kicked off a long tradition of original artwork in the magazine, and it's cartoons, usually accompanied by characteristically dry eye roll inducing captions, has since become one of the most defining elements of the New Yorker style. Some of the most famous humorists in American history have contributed art to the magazine, and modern issues also reserve the last page for the New Yorker cartoon caption contest, which challenges readers to come up with their own captions for pre-drawn cartoons. Maybe I'll enter the contest someday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time for a music fact. Today in 1969, Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan got together at CBS Studios in Nashville to record a series of duets. Dylan had been polishing off the final tracks of his ninth studio album, Nashville Skyline, and Cash had been recording next door with his band. Together, the two heavyweights jammed, recording covers of Dylan's One Too Many Mornings and Don't Think Twice, It's Alright, and Cash's song, I Still Miss Someone. Although the songs from the CBS sessions were planned for an album of duets, that album never came to be, and only one of the tracks, Girl from the North Country, even made it into the album Dylan was recording, and some critics who listened to the bootlegs have even said that their voices didn't mesh particularly well together. But hey, when you combine two of music's greatest legends in the studio, you'll either get a masterpiece or a disaster, and sometimes you get a little bit of both. If you're interested in the idea of these two greats working together, some creative Googling should get you some clips, but the songs aren't available anywhere officially. And now for our final segment of the day, I'm going to go into my own photo archives and see what I was up to on a February 17th in my life. February 17th in 2019, I was in... San Diego, California, to go on vacation with my family. My mom wasn't there. It was just me, my dad, my brother, my grandpa, and my grandma. And we went to, God, I don't even remember where we went to necessarily in San Diego. We did, however, go to this tacos place. Um, Oh, gosh, what was it called? Oh, it was so good. Let me Google it. I see. Okay, okay. Tacos El Gordo in San Diego is one of the most delicious taco places I have ever been to. Like, not even joking. Birria tacos are really good. Um, Street tacos where they have like al pastor and pineapple are really good. These ones are al pastor tacos. Oh my gosh, they're so good. I love food more than most things in my life. And if I could go back to San Diego just so I could eat those tacos, I would. Thank you for going back in time with me and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can come back tomorrow for more facts from yesterday. Bye. 
It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's 365.